Paul LaRue was a criminal mastermind. As an expert computer programmer, he made millions through online prescription drugs. He later graduated to guns and illicit drugs, which all led to a spectacular downfall. If you enjoy these episodes and want to hear more like them, check out our Kingpins podcast. Every Friday, we examine the leaders of organized crime rings and find out what it takes to rule the underworld. Follow Kingpins free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. In early 2009, four men cruised a luxury yacht toward the small Filipino island of Cebu. Sitting on the back deck of the boat, enjoying the sun, was a 26-year-old Israeli named Moran Oz. Oz managed a customer service call center in Israel for a pharmaceutical company called Rx Limited. His boss, Paul LaRue, wanted him to survey Cebu as a potential site for a new call center. But Oz wasn't entirely sure what the other three men on the boat did at RX Limited. Before this morning, he had never met any of them before. One of them was a cheerful British man named Dave Smith. The other two brawny men with shaved heads called themselves Joe and Chris. Oz thought they looked like bodyguards, not businessmen. And as they made their way to Cebu, Dave was the one doing all of the talking. At one point, one of the muscular men asked Oz to stand for a moment. Happy to oblige, Oz stood up, and the next thing he knew... He was in the water. Oz struggled to keep his head above water, but his sodden clothes weighed him down. As the boat circled back, Oz told himself that he must have slipped. Clearly, it was some kind of accident. Oz waited for the men to toss a rescue ring for him. Instead, he saw a rifle pointed directly at him. He turned toward Dave and his eyes widened in fear. Dave wasn't holding another gun. He was on the phone. Oz knew exactly what was happening. His boss, Paul LaRue, was ordering his execution. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our first episode on Zimbabwean criminal mastermind Paul LaRue. LaRue was an expert computer programmer and an early adopter of the Internet. 
In the mid-2000s, LaRue made millions through online prescription drugs and helped contribute to the current opioid addiction crisis. This week, we'll delve into LaRue's origins and examine what drove him to build an international prescription drug conglomerate. And he did it all from behind his laptop. Next week, we'll focus on one illegal venture that represents LaRue's unwieldy criminal empire, a Somalian fishing business that turned into a drug manufacturing hub. And we'll see how his ambitions led him right into the hands of the DEA. In early 2009, 36-year-old Paul LaRue was just beginning to branch out from pharmaceuticals into more ambitious criminal ventures. LaRue was high on his own power, but he was also getting paranoid. That paranoia was making him distrust even his most seasoned employees, like call center manager Moran Oz. Oz had no idea that he'd somehow run afoul of LaRue. In fact, all signs pointed to LaRue liking him. After Oz arrived in Manila, LaRue drove him out to the coast in his own BMW. On the way, they stopped at McDonald's for breakfast. Oz knew that LaRue was a rich man, but he wasn't surprised by the breakfast choice. In fact, Oz was more surprised that LaRue actually treated him. Usually, when LaRue's employees met him at restaurants, he would only order food for himself. Their next stop was the Subic Bay Yacht Club, where LaRue paid in advance for Oz's hotel room. Oz would stay here overnight and then meet the other employees as he headed out to the island of Cebu the next morning. Oz entered his hotel room that afternoon feeling buoyant. Not only was his boss having him oversee an expansion of his company, RX Limited, but he was finally treating Oz like a peer, paying for his food and high-end lodging. Of course, Oz was wrong. The entire story about building an RX Limited call center in Cebu had been a trap. Now, Oz was in the open ocean with a rifle pointed at him. After a few seconds of gunfire, Oz took a breath of relief. He wasn't hit. A voice from on deck shouted down at him, That was to frighten off the sharks. Don't think I missed. The next time will be for you. Dave Smith, the talkative British man, finally relayed LaRue's orders from the satellite phone. He told Oz, Confess and we'll kill you. Keep denying it, and we'll wound you and leave you to the sharks. Your choice. Oz racked his brain. What could he possibly need to confess to? He insisted that he'd done nothing wrong. He hadn't stolen from the company. He would never do anything without LaRue's permission. Smith said something into the satellite phone. Oz struggled to stay afloat while LaRue determined his fate. After a few more tense moments, one of the muscular men climbed down the yacht's ladder and pulled Oz back on board. Oz never knew what LaRue said on the other end of that phone. Perhaps he only meant to scare him that day. Or perhaps Oz had managed to talk his way into a stay of execution. When Smith brought Oz back to Subic Bay Yacht Club, he left him with one final warning. He said, we are like an octopus. We have tentacles all over the world. 
You need to understand that we can reach you everywhere, even in Israel. You are not safe anywhere. The following day, LaRue picked up Oz to bring him back to Manila. Oz got into the car hesitantly. He didn't know what to expect from his volatile boss, but his ride with LaRue was his only way back home to Israel. Oz summoned the courage to ask why he'd been taken hostage and tortured. LaRue shrugged. He claimed to know nothing about the incident, but he also showed no signs of surprise or concern. Instead, he told Oz that he couldn't be held responsible for what his partners might do. He said, you don't want to deal with these guys. They will find you. Do whatever they say. This was emblematic of how LaRue liked to handle his business. He rarely solved problems personally, preferring to issue commands from his phone or laptop. He controlled the action from afar, like he was playing a video game, like he was God. LaRue also liked to use mixed signals and subterfuge to keep his employees off balance. No single person ever knew how their role fit into the larger operation, and they never knew how LaRue really felt about them. LaRue's employees were doing a wide variety of work all over the world, from fielding customer service calls in Israel, to transporting gold in the Congo, to scouting real estate in the Philippines, to assembling a militia in Somalia. But despite their different skill sets, they all had similar impressions of their mysterious boss. One of LaRue's fixers, Tim Vambacchius, best described LaRue as a constant threatening presence. He said, it was almost like the guy never slept, and you never knew which personality you'd get on the other end. When he called, he never said who he was, but you knew it was him. Sometimes calm and other times irate, and most of the time, you never even knew why. When LaRue's employees finally met him, they didn't know what to expect because there were no photos of him on the internet. But the first thing they noticed was his size. He was white, about six feet tall, with an enormous girth. The source of LaRue's girth wasn't a mystery. He was known to favor fast food like Domino's or McDonald's at his desk rather than going out to eat a steak. In most aspects of life, he prioritized efficiency over quality. He usually dressed in a t-shirt, cargo shorts, and flip-flops. The effect was disarming. One employee said, nobody has ever thought the first time they met him that he runs a global criminal empire. LaRue's accommodations reflected that as well. He owned a series of high-end condos in Manila, but all of them were mostly unfurnished aside from a couch, bed, and television but they ran up unusually high electricity bills. That's because, of course, he was constantly running fleets of servers. Where LaRue was casual about his home and clothing, he was obsessive about his computer setup. He worked off an ancient laptop, operating Microsoft software over 10 years old. Sounds counterintuitive, but he preferred this setup because he was able to fully encrypt the entire hard drive. The moment he closed the lid of the laptop, the contents would be unreachable by any outsider. Programming and encryption had preoccupied LaRue since his youth. In fact, computers were his first love. 
Paul LaRue was born on December 24, 1972, in Bulawayo, Rhodesia, today known as Zimbabwe. As a child, a relative said that LaRue, quote, was fought over. Everyone wanted him. Our grandparents worshipped the ground he walked on. When he was a teenager, LaRue's family moved to South Africa in search of better education. LaRue resented having to learn Afrikaans, the local language spoken in school. He felt superior to his classmates, referring to them as halfwits and morons. His salvation came in his first computer. As soon as LaRue realized he could build entire worlds in code, worlds that were governed by his rules, he was hooked. One of LaRue's cousins remembers teenage LaRue as, quote, completely antisocial. Every time we went there, he was always holed up in his room. I remember going in and seeing lines and lines of numbers on the screen. And it didn't take him long at all to figure out how coding could start bringing in money. Illegally, of course. In 1989, the police showed up at LaRue's Johannesburg home and arrested the 16-year-old for selling pornography. In these early days before the internet, it appeared LaRue had revolutionized pornography distribution by going digital. But the specifics to his operation remain murky to this day. What we do know for sure was that Paul's parents were appalled, but he himself just laughed. When LaRue retold this story with a plum and pride, he would recall how silly the entire situation seemed to him. Everyone would have praised him if he'd found a new method of selling books or linens. All this fuss just because his commodity was porn. As long as LaRue was making money, he didn't care what he was selling. And even as a teenager, he didn't care about breaking the law. He didn't care about exploiting others. Later on, that instinct would have disastrous results. Not just for LaRue himself, but also for his employees and the entire country of the United States. Coming up, LaRue uses his coding skills to make millions selling illegal painkiller prescriptions and helps ignite the opioid epidemic. Now, back to the story. In 1989, 16-year-old Paul LaRue was arrested for selling pornography online. The arrest did nothing to diminish his interest in coding or using the World Wide Web to make money. In fact, he doubled down. In 1990, Paul LaRue dropped out of high school to dedicate himself fully to coding. He completed a year's worth of coursework at a South African college in just eight weeks. By 1991, he had collected programming certificates from three different training courses. LaRue was ready to make moves on his own. As he grew older, he felt he was outgrowing South Africa. He wanted to live somewhere cosmopolitan where his skills would be recognized. In the early 90s, when he was 18 or 19, he purchased a one-way ticket to London. When he arrived at the airport, he was told that his luggage was too heavy. Instead of paying the overweight fee, he opened his bags and removed his clothes. When the luggage went back on the scale, there was nothing but coding books inside. 
he would travel to London with only the clothes on his back. LaRue quickly secured his first job in England at BEI, a modest software development company. Right away, he prioritized his work above everything else. His early employer described him as having, quote, very little personality. He was against doing anything social. He had no interest in building relationships with anyone, as far as I could see. LaRue thought he was finally living his best life, completely absorbed in his work. But as the 90s progressed and he continued to expand his skills as a coder, he found that his work at BEI wasn't enough to satisfy his intellect. He started working on his own project at home. In 1997, 24-year-old LaRue began developing his own encryption software in his free time. He called it Encryption for the Masses, or E4M for short. Up until this point, encrypted files would still appear during a search of the hard drive. In fact, encrypting files actually had the unfortunate side effect of showing the authorities exactly which files they should look at. But LaRue's E4M was different. Users could encrypt their entire hard drive or single files, and the files would be completely concealed from any invaders. It was LaRue's very first stroke of genius. Through the software's development, LaRue used coding forums on the internet to troubleshoot issues and solicit advice. When he was ready to release E4M in 1998, he posted the code online for free. In the spirit of the early internet, he wanted his community of coding peers to continue working on the project, improving it for the common good. Of course, as we all know, the internet is not always a community that works toward the common good. It's often a cesspool for the very worst of human behavior. The internet chewed up LaRue's genius software code and exploited the hilt. Roughly two years after E4M's free release, LaRue found himself working for a client who was developing software that used elements of the E4M code. And unlike LaRue, the client was monetizing it. LaRue had never seen a cent of profits from the software. LaRue complained about his situation on the message boards. He wrote, the whole point in the beginning of E4M was to publish the code to get peer review and help to enhance the product. In the end, people climbed onto my back, did not help one bit, bitched all the time, stole the code for incorporation into their own products, and generally abused the whole situation. The abuse of LaRue's life's work on E4M changed him forever. He'd never trust a stranger again. And a year later, he learned he could never trust his family either. In 2002, 30-year-old LaRue applied to renew his passport. He was finally going into business on his own and wanted to make sure he was free to travel as needed. But when he received a copy of his original birth certificate from Zimbabwe, he noticed something strange. The name listed under mother wasn't the woman who raised him. And where Paul LaRue's name should have been, it said unknown. When LaRue called home, a relative was reluctant to discuss the issue. But finally, they admitted that LaRue had been adopted. 
LaRue was forever haunted by the revelation, particularly by the fact that his given birth name was just unknown. LaRue wanted to be known, to be someone influential. But at the same time, the incident fueled his mistrust. As much as he wanted to be famous and powerful, he would always operate in the shadows behind heavy encryption. And LaRue's first business proved that he could do just that. He called his company RX Limited. He described the venture as an online pharmacy designed to help streamline the complicated and expensive prescription process in the United States. He claimed he wanted to help people get their medication more quickly and easily, in his words, without them having to go through all this rigmarole. The rigmarole was actually having to go to a doctor's office, receive a diagnosis, and get a prescription. Now, they didn't have to do any of that. LaRue wasn't helping people. His business model wasn't that different than the porn he sold back in the 1980s. He had found an untapped market, desperate Americans looking for easy access to drugs, and he was going to exploit it. For most patients, their first contact with RX Limited was through email spam or at the top of a search page for cheap pills or drugs online. They would find legitimate-looking websites with names like CheapRxMeds.net or AllTheBestRx.com, with banners on top touting them as trusted online pharmacy since 2004 and stock photos of doctors. Users could find anything on these sites, from asthma medication to Viagra. But the bulk of Rx Limited's sales were three drugs, Ultram, Soma, and Fioraset. These drugs had two things in common. They were powerful painkillers with the potential for addiction. And they were all outside the scope of drugs labeled controlled substances by the DEA. That meant RX Limited could sell them with little risk of prosecution. And if any users were concerned about the legality of their transaction, all of RX Limited's websites provided a soothing disclaimer. Our company is committed to meeting and exceeding all government regulations covering this new form of healthcare provision. AceMeds.com will only refer your order to certified physicians that are fully licensed. That claim was mostly true. After users selected their drugs of choice, they were routed to a medical questionnaire. The information they provided about their symptoms and medical history was relayed to a licensed physician. Those physicians, for the most part, would simply hit approve. After a licensed physician approved the prescription, the order was routed to an RX Limited affiliated pharmacy. From there, it was shipped via FedEx to the customer's door. In order to prevent each individual website from being traced back to LaRue and his headquarters in the Philippines, he created his own domain registrar. That registrar minted an unlimited number of website domains. He didn't have to worry about an outside domain service turning over his information to the police. And when any of his sites were shut down, it only took him a few clicks to open a new one. LaRue had designed his business so that he controlled every part of it. In the corporate sector, the organization would be called a fully integrated vertical business. Just two years after RX Limited went live, 
it was bringing in tens of millions of dollars a year in profits. When the DEA first looked into LaRue's setup a few years later, even they were blown away by the brilliance of his design. Agent Stephen Holdren said, We knew he was a legitimate drug kingpin. We knew he was the real deal. And he was a genius to put this all together. With money pouring in, LaRue relocated to Manila, where local laws were favorable to international businesses. There, he decided to branch out into bigger and more ambitious ventures. And the next business would prove deadlier than anyone could have imagined. Coming up, LaRue moves from the online world to the real underworld. Now, back to the story. In 2005, 32-year-old Paul LaRue was making millions with his online pharmaceutical company, RX Limited. But he wasn't content to run a shady online pharmacy. He wanted power. He wanted to be known. In 2005, LaRue brought on Moran Oz to manage one of his customer service call centers. Oz staffed the center as quickly as he could, but LaRue kept siphoning off staff for odd tasks totally unrelated to RX Limited. One recruit was spirited off to supervise a timber operation in Mozambique. Another was overseeing the purchase of gold directly from African mines. Yet another kept watch over his stash houses in Hong Kong. LaRue was diversifying. With the amount of money he was making from RX Limited, he could do whatever he wanted. And his employees were along for the ride, whether they liked it or not. But LaRue knew that if he really wanted to expand his criminal horizons, his RX Limited hires would only take him so far. He needed a different kind of employee. People who were familiar with security, who were comfortable negotiating with foreign nationals, who wouldn't bat an eye when LaRue disciplined them by, say, throwing them off a boat. Enter Dave Smith. Dave Smith was an ex-British military, but his service history is spotty. He liked to say he was in the regiment, referring to the exclusive British Special Air Services. He also claimed he worked in the United States as a SWAT team trainer. And in the late 90s, he moved into private security contract work. The most prominent work on his resume was as a military advisor to the warlord president of Liberia. This experience was what really piqued LaRue's interest. With a man like Smith on his payroll, by the end of 2005, LaRue had military contacts all over the globe at his fingertips. His first task for them was to shore up protection at his Manila headquarters. Dave Smith and his cohorts started building relationships with all kinds of Filipino authorities, both on local and national levels. Most of those relationships involved trading money for information and protection. With the authorities paid off, LaRue and his growing force of mercenaries were able to operate out of Manila with complete impunity. One of the most legendary stories about LaRue's political reach started in his bedroom. He was known for his voracious sexual appetite. But one night, a woman refused one of his sexual demands. Instead of sending the girl back out into the night, 
LaRue pulled out a baseball bat and beat her senseless until she managed to escape. It only took a few days for LaRue to find out that he hadn't beaten up just another sex worker. The woman was the daughter of a Filipino senator. If anyone else had done the beating, they would have been dead, but not LaRue. He invited the senator to his office and offered him $3 million as an apology. And beyond that, he offered to put the senator on his payroll. In exchange, the senator would provide LaRue with useful information. It worked. LaRue was not only able to escape any consequences, but he actually turned his enemy into an ally. LaRue's reputation was starting to precede him, but he was careful to keep the details of his operation under wraps. Almost everyone on his payroll was working in a vacuum. Even Dave Smith, the closest thing LaRue had to a number two, knew only the bare minimum about the expanding company. Only one person knew how their actions connected to the whole, Paul LaRue. Often, the work was perplexing or even downright pointless. A former military fixer in LaRue's employ, who we'll call Mark Wilson, recalled, Many, many times we did things. We were like, what the hell are we doing here? We didn't see the point. You ask yourself why. But it's just something that just comes up in his mind and only he knows the exact reason why. Wilson first learned about this idiosyncrasy during his job interview in early 2007. He only knew the boss by his first name, which he thought was Johan. When Wilson arrived at the residence, three security guards searched him for weapons before he could go inside. LaRue only spoke with Wilson briefly before telling him, Tomorrow, you are flying to Port Moresby, Papua New Guinea. Is that okay? Apparently, he already had the job. Wilson didn't know anything about Papua New Guinea or why LaRue was scouting out oceanfront property there. But he was desperate for work, so he took the offer. He had no idea he had just agreed to travel to one of the most dangerous places on the planet in the employ of an international crime lord in a job that got weirder with each passing day. Sometime in 2008, Wilson moved into a house with two of LaRue's other employees. At first, the two other men were secretive about what exactly their role was in the company, which is what the employees had started calling the mysterious organization. But the more time Wilson spent with his new roommates, he realized they were essentially an on-call enforcement team. They acted on LaRue's orders no matter how violent or illegal. They bragged about lucrative bonus work or wet work, which Wilson learned was code for assassinations. LaRue took deadly revenge on anyone who wronged him, business partners and employees alike. As Wilson later said, everybody was scared of LaRue. They all knew what he was capable of, and he wasn't shy to turn on you. In late 2008, LaRue enlisted Wilson to participate in one of his revenge plots. Wilson was ordered to go to a Manila townhouse where a man named Steve Hahn was staying. It was Wilson's job to look after Steve and make sure he didn't go anywhere. Steve and his brother Andrew had allegedly used $1.5 million of LaRue's money to purchase fake gold. 
The brothers claimed that it was a mistake. They were the ones who'd been defrauded. LaRue pretended to accept this story. In reality, he was sure the brothers had scammed him out of the money. But if he was going to lure them back to Manila, he needed the brothers to think all was forgiven. Steve didn't realize he was in trouble until he was trapped in a safe house with Mark Wilson. The only reason Steve was being kept alive was because LaRue was hoping to get back the $1.5 million he'd lost. When it became obvious that he really didn't have the money, LaRue lost his patience. He told Wilson, they lost it, they lose their life. Eventually, LaRue gave in and allowed Steve to leave Manila alive to try and raise the money he needed to pay back. Wilson was finally freed from his babysitting detail. But not long after, in early 2009, LaRue summoned him to a meeting. The Steve Hahn ordeal had shown Wilson could be trusted. Now, LaRue had a new job for him, something very important to the company. LaRue gave Wilson his most absurd and dangerous orders yet. In order to survive, he would need heavy weaponry and all his military skills. This job was unlike anything else Wilson or LaRue had ever attempted before. Mark Wilson was told to go to Somalia and begin construction on a tuna fishing business. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Paul LaRue's plan to build a fishing business in Somalia turned into a private militia. For more information on Paul LaRue, among the many sources used, we found Evan Ratliff's book, The Mastermind, particularly helpful in our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs> <laughs>